Wow, I want to thank the worship team. We, we sang today, How Great Thou Art, and then we sang, All My Life You Have Been Faithful, All My Life You Have Been Good, and then we sang, Yet Not I But Christ in Me. What true and powerful lyrics. So um, thank you, worship team, for leading us through that. Really appreciate it. Another thank you today. This is Veterans Weekend, so I'd like to just pause for a moment and say thank you to people who have served our country. So if you are in the room today and you have served in any field or any branch of the armed services, I would like to ask you to just stand for a moment. Um, and if you're at home, I would ask you also to stand, but I can't see you there. Please stay standing. Please stay standing. Yeah, so I would like to say thank you for serving our country, and thank you for serving us for the time and energy and sacrifices that you have made that we know nothing about, but we're the beneficiaries of. Thank you so much. While you're standing, I'd like to also ask anyone who may currently be serving in any branch of the armed services to stand and join them. And we thank you, too, for serving us. Uh, we appreciate all of you, and we want to recognize you today. Give them one more hand, please, before they sit down. And may God bless you all today and in your days going forward. Thank you so much. My name is Rich Joy. I'm currently serving as Calvary's interim pastor. And once again, very happy to be here with you this morning. We're still working our way through the New Testament book of Colossians. And we are coming around toward the end of it. We've got a couple weeks left of Colossians. The passage that we're going to look at, the section we're looking at today, is Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. In case you have a Bible and you want to get to where we're going to be, or if you're on an app on your phone, we're going to be in 3, 8 to 4, 1. But before we look at a single verse, I want to get the groan out of the way. The groan, the one that goes like this. Uh, we're not going there, are we? And I want you to do it with me. I want everybody to be able to express it before we open the page. So we're going to do it together. We're going to, not yet, but we're all going to say, oh, we're not going there, are we? On three, okay? One, two, three. Oh, we're not going there, are we? All right, Colossians 3.18. Let's put it up. Wives, submit to your husbands as... Oh, we already did the groan. That's why I got it out of the way. <laughs> All right. Do we need to do it one more time? <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Period. Amen. Everybody go home. We're done. <laughs> See, the, this verse is in the Bible. We can't skip it. We can't pretend it's not there. But we get into trouble, really, when we put the period at the end of the sentence there, like I just did, and say, now we're done. Without context, this verse is too often misunderstood. What we do with this verse is we zoom in on it. We step closer to it. We just focus in and say, yes, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But this verse was not meant to stand by itself. This verse was meant to be understood in a context. We can't zoom in and look closely on this one. We have to zoom out. We have to step back and look at the bigger picture. 
to understand relationships between husbands and wives. The Bible has something to say about it. It's really important. And this passage we're going to look at addresses that. So let's not zoom in on this. Let's zoom out. Let's step back and look at the bigger picture. The next verse, let's look at them together. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. It says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, we're getting a little better now. Now that we added that second line in. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be overbearing. Do not be demanding. Do not be bossy. Those are all my words, but those are words I think of when I think of the word harsh. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We've taken a little bit of a step back, added a little bit more context to that verse, wives, submit to your husbands. But we actually still need to see an even bigger picture. We need to take another step back and broaden our view if we're really going to understand what the Bible says about relationships between husbands and wives. And I'm going to pull in a parallel passage from Ephesians that says sort of the same thing, but broadens our view a little. It's Ephesians 5, 21 through 24. And it's really interesting to me that this passage starts with verse 21. We can't cut this one out and throw it away. This is an important part of this passage. It says this first, before it says anything about husbands and wives. The Bible says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Give to each other. Meet the needs of each other. Submit to each other in our context here would mean humble yourself so you can lift someone else up. Put your needs aside so you can meet the needs of another person first. That's Jesus' way of doing things. So we need to have that principle in our mind. Submit to one another. Meet the needs of one another. Love one another. Lift the other person up. Before we read the rest of the passage, that talks about the relationship between husband and wife. So now let's read a little bit further. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And I'm going to stop right there, because this is a little bit different than the one we just read in Colossians. Colossians says, wives, submit to your husbands. Ephesians says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. That word is intentional there. It has a meaning. It's very personal. It's very possessive, the word that gets translated own there. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. If I could say it bluntly, it's saying, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands, not to someone else's husband to your own. You're in a, a relationship where Jesus said that husband and wife, the two become one flesh. Submit yourself in that relationship, this says, as you do to the Lord. And then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Here's another place we like to put the period. For the husband is the head of the wife, period, done, amen, go home. And this is all, often very misinterpreted, but I'm going to read the rest of the passage and then come back to this. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So this idea of head, says the husband is the head, the head of the wife, the head of the household, the husband's the leader, the husband's the head. This needs to be properly understood. We have to understand head as Jesus' head of the church, as Jesus defines head. If we take the world's definition of head, we're going to make a mess of this. 
For many years, I counseled young couples who were going to be married, what we call premarital counseling. And we would talk about the relationship between husband and wife. And we would get this, to this idea of headship. And uh, we would start talking about it. And the, the young man would say, yes, the Bible says, I'm going to be the head of the household. I'm the head. And the young woman would say, that's right. We believe in the Bible, and he's the head. He's going to be the head of our household. I said, the Bible says that. But what does it, what does it mean? What does it mean for you, I'd say to the young man, what does it mean for you to be the head of your household? And so many times this was the answer. It means I make the decisions in the house. Yeah, well, we'll give that a little time, see how that goes. Um, and, and, and then she would say, that's right, he's the head, he makes the decisions, and I'm going to follow the things he decides. I said, that's, that's it, that's your whole definition of head? I make decisions. And sometimes that's how we think about it, because our world's definition of head is if you are the head of a company, if you're the head of a corporation, if you're the head of a group, it means you're at the top of the pyramid. And you can boss everyone else around, and you can tell everyone in that organization what to do. And they have to follow it. That's the structure of the organization. We might want to try to take that understanding of head and place it into this context and say, the husband is the head of the wife, the husband's the head of the household. That means he's the boss. That means he tells everyone in the house what to do, and everyone follows his rules. He's at the top of the pyramid, and everyone else is below it. He's like the king, and they're all the subjects in the household. We might want to understand head in that context, where the boss can dominate or squash or control or hold everybody down or in. That's not the way Jesus is the head of the church. This passage says, um, husbands, be the head. And I, I say this to men all the time. And I say it in counseling, I say it in conversations, you know what, men? Lead. Lead your household. Go be the head. Be the head of your household. But do it the way Jesus said. The key phrase here is, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, of which he is the Savior. It doesn't name Jesus as conquering king there, dominating boss, controller, ruler. He's the ruler of the universe. But this passage brings in this about Jesus. In the context of being head, husbands, be a head like Christ is, like he was the Savior. So let's start thinking about husbands, men, wives, women. What does it mean that Jesus was our Savior? It meant he left heaven. He didn't have to. He didn't have a personal need for this. He set aside all of his rights to come here, to this earth, and confine himself to this fleshly body. Why in the world would you do that when you're, you're Lord of the universe, put yourself in a lowly body of flesh, and come here and walk this earth and interact with us and talk to us and teach us and call us to God, and then willingly die? He willingly placed himself on a cross, the most brutal way to die in his day. For us, to pay a price for our wrongs, for our sin, to reconcile us to God. He set aside his, himself. He humbled himself. He lowered himself to meet my needs so that I could be saved and loved and made right. That's how Jesus is our Savior. That's how Jesus is the head of the church. So husbands, men, 
in your household, lead like Jesus did. Put your needs aside. Lay your life down. Lift up the needs of your family. Humble yourself and try to make everyone else more successful than you. Be the biggest servant in your household. Jesus said this, if you want to lead, he's told his disciples this, if you want to lead, serve. If you want to be great, be the least. So husbands, here's, husbands, fathers, here's how you be the head of your household. Serve, be the least. Make everyone else the greatest. Now let me ask you something, women and wives. If your husbands and the men in your life led like that, if they were the head like that and they put your needs first and did everything they could to lift you up and lay down their lives for you, wouldn't you submit to that? That's the context that this passage has to be understood in. That's why Ephesians started with submit to each other. Because the husband lays down his life for his wife. And the wife lays down her life in return in submission. Then the relationship works. It's so lopsided if you only try to get one side of that. To just say, wives, submit to your husbands. Do what they tell you to do. That's not biblical. That's not what this passage says. This passage says something very different. Jesus is the head of the church. He gave himself for us. Husbands, do the same. Let's keep going. Uh, I'm still in Ephesians now. We'll get back to Colossians in a minute, but I want to read a little bit more of this Ephesians passage. How, how are you doing? Anyone need a quick groan before we move on? We good? Okay. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. There it is right there. There it is right there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love your wives, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Picture just popped into my mind. I mentioned last week that the week before I wasn't here because I was officiating at the wedding of my nephew and his bride, who are now wonderfully married. I've officiated at many, 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 many weddings over my years as a pastor. And it's this beautiful picture of Christ in the church. When a groom is standing there and his bride walks in dressed in white, radiant, glowing in that day, and he's pledging himself to give himself fully to her, and she's pledging herself to give herself radiant and wrinkle-free, <laughs> To him, all of his life. It's this beautiful picture of Christ in the church. Jesus called himself our groom. And that we are his beautiful bride. And as our groom, he laid down his life for us so that we could be lifted up to be radiant and holy, wrinkle-free, stain-free, blemish-free, sin-free, righteous. And that's all his doing. It's all his doing. And our Husband-wife relationships in the church reflect that glory. Let's jump back now to the Colossians 18 passage. Um, we have stepped back a little bit. We've taken a broader view. We're going to add a couple more verses here from our passage. The first ones we read, um, I'm going to add two more too. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, do we have any children in the room? I don't care what age you are, how many of you are children? Okay, children, obey your parents in everything. It doesn't include an age in their children where you can stop obeying your parents. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. I've always wondered when I've read that passage why that line was thrown in there. It's just directed right at fathers not to embitter their children. I'm a father of three. I'm a grandfather of six now. And I know as a father, in my role as father, I have a lot of ability, a lot of opportunity, a lot of potential to discourage my children. I can frustrate them. I can embitter them. I can weigh them down. Or, as a father, I can encourage them. I can breathe life into them. I can encourage them. I can lift them up. This is, I'm not going to turn this into a parenting class. Parenting class would be a great thing, but we're not doing that right now. There are a lot of things you can say about how to encourage and, and affirm children and not embitter and be harsh with them and discourage them. But I would sum it up in this way. Fathers, we have a choice to be overbearing or to be affirming. And the choice rests with us how we approach our children. This passage says, don't be overbearing with your children. Don't frustrate them. Don't embitter them. Don't exasperate them. That's a strong word. Uh, I don't know if I said it in that one or the next one I'm going to read. Oh, it's in the next one I'm going to read. Let's keep going. I'm going, jumping back to Ephesians 6. Um, we were reading in Ephesians 5. This is, a, again, a parallel passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. What that means is that when you were reading through the Ten Commandments, um, this was the first commandment that you, this is the first commandment that you come to that tax a promise on that says, honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you. You will have a blessing if you honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then it says again in that passage, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So we've looked at two parallel passages that talk about the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children. And as I read through these this past week, the question popped into my mind. Why is this so important? Why does the Bible take so much real estate in these passages to talk about these relationships and in other places? Why does the family matter so much? Why does the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children matter so much that it gets spoken to directly in so many places in the Bible? And for me, the answer to that first went back to creation. Because for me, a lot of my answers are found in the first three chapters of Genesis. I believe we can learn so much from creation and the fall, how things were designed to be, and then how they got ruined, and what happened after that can teach us so much about men and women, husbands and wives, parents and children, relationships, us and God. We can do a whole teaching series just on the first three chapters of Genesis. There's so much in there. So let me just take a piece of that and say, I believe that right from creation, right from the beginning, there was a, there was a significance placed on, on family. 
And it started with Adam. When God created Adam, Adam was all alone. He was by himself, and he was told to work the garden. When Eve came, everything changed. Everything. Adam was alone. Adam worked the garden. Adam had no one to talk to. Now, some of you men right now are daydreaming, thinking that was paradise. (laughs) Give me a little job. Give me a little section of the garden. Don't talk to me, and it'll be good. But God said it wasn't good. God said it's not good for Adam to be by himself. He could talk to the animals like, um, hey, cow, how's your day? But the cow didn't answer him back. There's no relationship there. There's no communication. There's no interaction. Here's what changed when Eve came on the scene. Eve brought relationship. Adam didn't have relationship. He had relationship with the Lord and a caretaking relationship with creation, but he didn't have a relationship with someone like him, another human. When Eve was created and Eve came on the scene, relationship between people became to be. Now, Adam and Eve could have an exchange of ideas. Adam could express what's in his heart, and Eve could receive it and understand it. Eve could express what's on her heart and mind, and Adam could receive it and understand it. They could have communication. They could have intimacy. They could have relationship. Everything changed when Eve came on the scene. What I think is really interesting is not just communication, not just relationship, but a bigger thing happened. When God made Adam, he put him in the garden, and he said, work the garden. He gave Adam a job. I don't know how big the garden was. Maybe it was the size of this room. Maybe it was the size of Trumbull. I don't know. Maybe it was the size of the Tri-State. I don't know how big the garden was. But Adam's job was limited to caring for the garden. Adam, take care of the garden. When Eve came on the scene and she was created, the job broadened. It got much bigger. God stood before Adam and Eve and said, multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. It was a job Adam couldn't do by himself. They had to do it together. And it was bigger than take care of this garden I created. It's fill this earth, rule it, care for it, and do it together. Now, they're going to um, bring their uniqueness to this. Adam's going to be a man. Eve's going to be a woman. Their gender makes a difference. They're going to come at it as a team, and they're going to bring their unique perspectives. They're going to bring their unique temperaments. They're going to bring their unique makeup as man and woman, and together as a team, they're going to fulfill what God placed before them. Eve couldn't do that alone. Adam couldn't do that alone. They had to do it together. You see, when Eve came on the scene, everything changed. Adam was scooped up from the dust of the earth, and God said, work the earth. Adam's first relationship was with the earth. Eve was taken from Adam's side. Eve's first relationship was with Adam, and everything changed. And this relationship between man and woman, Adam and Eve, and now us today, men and women, was created by God. And after he created Eve, he said, now it's good. Here's what I believe. The Bible says in, the, in, in Genesis that in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That together, men and women, we reflect the image of God. That by myself as a man, 
I reflect the glory of God. I reflect his likeness. The Bible says that God is changing me from glory to glory to bring me more and more into the likeness of his son. Women, he's doing the same thing for you. He's, he's changing you in, to reflect more and more the image of his son. But there's something about men and women together that reflect the full glory of God and the full image of God. Male and female, he created them. He created them in his image. Together, we fully reflect the image of God. This relationship matters. This relationship between husband and wife matters. It's significant. It's powerful. It's a testimony to the universe of the glory of God. This relationship, when we're not married, between men and women, matters. Together, we reflect the image of God. Together, the, the, the principalities and the rulers look at this and say, this reflects the image of God. And then Adam and Eve did something that Adam couldn't do by himself, and Eve can't do by herself. They brought children into the picture. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now we have children. Adam didn't have that when he was by himself. He just had himself. Now he has a wife. Now he has children. And there's family. And this also reflects the glory of God because children now have parents. And when we look at children and parents, we can understand us and God. Fathers have children. When we understand how that relationship works in this natural life, we can get a spiritual aha that says, oh, God the Father is like that. I'm his child. I know what a child is like. We have children around here. Together, all of us reflect the family of God. And in this room and at home, if you're part of this body of Christ, this is called the family. Jesus said we're brothers and sisters, and God is our Father. So you women, you're, you're like a sister in this family of God to me. And you men, the Bible says you're like a brother in this family of God to me. We're sisters and brothers. That's what the Bible called us. It could have just said we're co-workers, we're co-creations, we're co-beings, but it goes further than that and describes us as a family. So I believe that this picture of a family, husband and wife, and children is significant. I believe it matters. I believe it's by God's design, and it reflects his glory, and I believe Satan likes to destroy everything God creates. He likes to take everything that is good and twist it so it's not good. And we can see evidences of that all over our world, can't we? It feels like there's an always an attack on the family. There's always an attack on marriage. There's always an attack on our, our uniqueness as men and women. Because it reflects the glory of God, it drives Satan crazy. And he does whatever he can to try to make a mess of that. We have to do whatever we can to continue reflecting the glory of God as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, fathers and, and children, mothers and children, sons and daughters, cousins, to, to reflect that glory of God. The passage goes on. Um, i got to check my time. I totally lost track of where I was and what time it was. It's still Sunday morning, right? Okay. Um, Colossians 3 goes on to another kind of relationship. It's uh, verses 22 through 4.1. We're going to finish the section I carved out for today. Let me just read it. Um, might at first be a little bit hard to relate to, but there are principles in here for us also. It says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, 
and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. I had to just I had to push the pause button right, right there for a second. There was a book that came out years ago. The title of it was Who You Are When No One's Looking. I didn't even read the book because everything I needed from that book was right there on the cover. Who you are when no one's looking. Who are you when no one's looking? This is talking to slaves, and we'll unpack what that means for a minute, but it's saying to them, do your job well. Do it as unto the Lord, even when your master's not looking. There's a powerful, powerful principle in that for us as Christians. Answering this question about myself, who am I when no one's looking? Who am I when I'm alone, when the light's not on me and no one's paying attention, when I'm working by myself or I am by myself? Who am I? So slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So let's just try to, let me just try to explain the context here, because we, we read slaves and masters, and we might try to understand that through our own framework of American history, when there was slavery and masters in this country. And that's not exactly what this is describing. This was a different kind of relationship in the day this was written, um, in the New Testament uh, time frame and, and Jesus' day, even back to the Old Testament. If you were a family um, and you didn't have a lot of money, if you were poor and you needed uh, money or help, you could enter into a, an agreement, a relationship with a family who had land and, and livestock and resources where um, you would commit yourself to that family. You would say, we will, me and my family, we will pledge ourselves to you. We will serve you. We will work your land. We will meet your needs. We will come under your authority. And then the, the family who had more resources would say, we will take you in. We will use your labor as you've offered it, and we will care for you, and you can live on our land. It was more of a um, uh, a working relationship. I, I'm not trying to uh, gloss over the um, what could seem like the inequity in the relationship. You have a master and a slave. But it wasn't always that people were taken against their will and forced to stay in a household against their will and forced to do labor with no compensation and never re released. It was an arrangement that was hopefully beneficial to both sides but one was called the master and one was called the slave. There was a, a ruler and a follower in that relationship. We don't really have something like this in our country other than the best comparison we could make, and it falls apart, is putting ourselves in the mindset of employer and employee to pull out some principles from this to say, what can I take from this passage when I don't consider myself a slave and I don't have a master other than Jesus? We can go back to this. I'm just going to go back and reread it with the words employer and employee in there and see if there's something we can get out of this that speaks to us today. Employees, obey your employers in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. I, I actually learned this principle very early on. I became a Christian at 18 years old. Um, it's a story for another day. I made a bad choice. I dropped out of college. I ended up collegeless and looking for a job. And um, I found a job in, uh, in uh, Lordship in a burial vault factory. I, I, we made burial vaults. I don't know if you know this, but out, if, you, if you put a coffin into the ground out in the cemetery, there's a, a concrete vault in the ground that it goes inside of. My job was to work in the factory where they made those burial vaults. It, it got me back to college. <laughs> but, um, when, you first, when I first started working there, uh, my job was to just work in the, in the factory warehouse making these concrete vaults. But the hope was they quickly learned that you wanted to get to the point where you could go out on the trucks and get out of the building and um, deliver these vaults to the gravesite. That was like a better job. So the people who had been there longer, they would all go out on these trucks and deliver these vaults and leave me alone in this big factory. And they'd leave me a list of things to do. I was just a kid. I'm sorry if you're 18 and you don't feel like a kid. I look at it now at 64 years old. I was just a kid. This was the first time I was really out in the real world. And I was left with this list of things to do in, the, in this factory while all the bosses and all the other workers were out delivering these vaults. And somewhere right along this time, I think my pastor, the church I was in, preached this. And I was at this point where I had just become a Christian. So anything the Bible said, I just said, I'll do it. The Bible said it, I'll do it. So I remember hearing that, and I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So when they were all out of the building, I did everything on the list, and then I started trying to do other things that were not on the list. As I learned the job, I started doing the extra. And I don't mean any of this in a self-promoting way. This was 100 years ago. Um, but what I'm trying to say is I learned this passage. I learned it because my bosses would come back, and they'd look around the room, and they'd go, wow, you got everything done that we asked you to do, and you got these extra things done, and they were very pleased. And with the result of that was the next time when they went out, they left me a longer list because they thought I was more capable, but I was smarter than them. While they were out, I did everything on their list, and then I did a few more things. And they came back, and they were like, well, you got all that done. And, uh, and you're not complaining. I, had, I, I tried to just keep a really good attitude. <laughs> they left me a longer list. And they went out, and I got everything done and a few things more. And finally, they said to me, why are you doing this? We're not here. We're leaving you a list of things to do, and you're doing everything we've asked you to do, and you're doing extra, and you seem happy about it. Why are you doing that? You know what that did for me? As an 18-year-old, brand-new Christian, gave me an opportunity to jump through the door and say, you need Jesus. <laughs> I'm doing this because Jesus is... I didn't say it like that. I might have. It's a long time ago. I'm doing this because Jesus is my master, and the Bible tells me to work as if I'm working for him. And I know that you're my bosses, but he's my real boss, and I'm trying to please him. And this passage just came to life for me. It was like, wow. It was probably one of my first encounters where a biblical principle, actually, I saw how it applied to life and the benefit of it and the blessing of it when I followed it. Like I said, now I'm, I'll be honest, I can't tell you I've always done that. I've always followed that, but I, I learned that one early. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. If we just work for human masters, it's too low of a view. We have a 
a master higher than every one of them that we can work for. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, we don't work for Jesus because we're getting paid. But one day, we're going to step into his presence and all of our toils, all of our struggles, all of our sacrifices, all of our hardships are going to melt away like they never were because we're going to be looking at Jesus face to face. Um, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. And now this would say, verse um, uh, 1, employers. I've been talking about employees. Some of you in the room might be employers. You might be bosses. Employers, provide for your employees with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So employees, employers, we all serve a master in heaven. This passage says, whatever you do, do it as if you're working for that master. And when we do, the relationships work well. So here's an interesting thing about Colossians. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think John said it a couple weeks ago, um, that there's a theme running through Colossians that's all about reconciliation. It's us being reconciled to Jesus and us being reconciled to each other. So it turns out, while Colossians is trying to remind us that Jesus is the one true God, and there's no other way to the Father except through him, there's a sub-theme running, running through about reconciliation. And we're starting to see some of that in this passage, that it's about, Colossians is about us being reconciled to Jesus by his doing, by his doing, and then us being reconciled to each other, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, brothers and sisters in Christ, to have healthy relationships that reflect his glory. That's the way God created it to be. And part of what God is doing is not just saving us individually, it's reconciling us together back as his family. And then what we're going to see is, and not just us in this room, but the people who have not yet come to be reconciled with Jesus, that part of what we're tasked to do is to help them find reconciliation with Jesus, to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. So I'm going to call our worship team back up. And while I do that, I want to give you just a moment to think on some of the things I've just said while they get in place and while they get ready. In the context of relationships, which I think that's this whole passage was about, I want you to think about the relationships in your life. If you're a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a friend or an employee or an employer, um, there's a relationship right now that's coming to your mind. I'm sure of it. As I've been talking, there's been a relationship that has come into picture in your mind and imagination. And maybe it's good. Maybe you just want to sit for a moment and say, thank you, God, for this reconciled relationship by your hand. Maybe it's you and Jesus. Maybe it's you and someone else. And you just need to take a moment today to say, thank you, God, for reconciliation by your power and by your grace. Or maybe you're thinking about one that's a little bit strained. It's a little bit troubled. It's a little bit hard or it's broken or there's a wedge in there. And you just, just take a moment and say, Jesus, help me do what I can to reconcile this one. I need your grace. I need your power. I need your love. I need your hand. I need your leading to make this one better. I'm going to give you a minute to pray that, and then I'll wrap us up in a prayer.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for reconciling us to yourself, for doing the hard work, for paying the price, for dying on the cross to bring us back to you. By your grace, there was nothing we could do except receive that gift. And now in that same way, may we lay down our life, lives, life for the people around us and offer grace and love and mercy and reconciliation and celebrate that in you. You're the master, you're the Lord. Jesus. Amen. Amen. The band is cho- uh, a worship team has chosen a song um, that we're going to celebrate, and um, it's about it's about Jesus. It's about everything He's done. And the Colossians, from verse one up to this point, it's all about what Jesus has done. So we're going to sing that, and we're going to celebrate, and we're going to honor Him for everything He's done. <laughs>